Church, there is one more elder. It's Nick Burkert. <laughs> Just wanted to make sure that we all knew who our elders were. I hope you've got your Bibles. It's going to be so good if you have your Bibles as we look into the text today. And maybe you brought one to church. Maybe you brought your phone and you use that as a Bible. That's good. Maybe you don't have a Bible at all. And there's a pew Bible right in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible, if you don't own a Bible, We'd love for you to take that home with you and uh, let that be our gift to you. We'd love everybody that we know to have the Word of God in their hands. I'm speaking today on the path to a good life. And way back in the Garden of Eden, God told Adam and Eve and mankind how they could have a good life. And so did the devil. And ever since then, we've had this conflict and this debate as to what is a good life. Our text today lays it out there. And by the time you leave here today, I don't want you to have any doubt in your mind whatsoever about what a good life is that comes from God. And so we're looking at today Proverbs 3, 1 through 12. And in those verses, it's going to tell you what you must do in order to have a good life. And we're going to see six commands. And each command is out there. And the Word of God is saying that if you will obey that command, then God will give you blessing. God will give you a good life. But before we look at this good life, I want to raise two issues at the outset to kind of give us an introduction into where we're heading. The first issue that I want to raise is what I'm calling the pseudo-good life. The word pseudo means false. And by the pseudo-good life, I mean there can appear to be a good life in America. We could have money and cars and boats and all kinds of things, popularity, fun, money, nice family, comfort, all this good life. And I'm not knocking that. But that can be the pseudo good life. Why? Because that kind of life, if you're not careful, we can live with self at the center and not God. And if we live with self at the center, it becomes a mirage. It becomes a temporary kind of thing that will soon pass away and leave us in the end very unsatisfied. You can't go deep with God in the pseudo life. Those good things become substitutes, but not really the things that satisfy, and they will not live on to eternity. So we've got to be very careful not to be tricked by the evil one and to think that all the good things of America and materialism is the good life. It may or may not be. God has to be at the center for it to be the good life. The second issue is the nature of the benefits that are stated here in Proverbs. Some people look at the results or the benefits that are coming after the command to be an absolute promise of God. That if you do this, a 100% promise, then that will happen. But you've got to understand, these are not ironclad, absolute promises of God. They are general rules of thumb. For instance, verse 1, it says, obey your parents. But some people die young, and these are godly people. Verse 7, some people have turned away from evil, but they're sick and afflicted. And the, the verse says, if you turn away from evil, you're going to be healthy. Fanny Crosby wrote a lot of our hymns. Blind her whole life, a godly woman. God never healed her. I talked about William Cooper just a few moments ago. This guy was insanely depressed, and God never healed him, even though he was a godly man. You see, there are times 
that even though the general rule of thumb is there, God has an individual purpose for somebody. And if he has an individual purpose for somebody, he may trump the general rule of thumb because he has this other purpose. And so it would be wrong for us to think, well, I, I obeyed my parents and, and, and I'm going to die young and say that God lied to me or that God can't be trusted. No, God is up to something else. But ordinarily, in general, if you want a good life, if you want a life that's blessed of God, there is a pathway we must walk. And so the big idea of my sermon today is this. If we follow God's directives, He'll bless us with wonderful results in this life. It's not just about the good things that we're talking about. It's not that we're going to get some things for a temporary time. We're talking about God's hand on our lives that will take us into the powerful benefits all the way into eternity. So in verses 1 through 12, we're going to look at six requisites to the good life. Six things, if you are willing to follow, God said, then in general, these things will happen to you. And so this week, we're going to look at the first three, and then in two weeks from today, we'll look at the last. So in honor of God's Word, I'm going to ask you to stand as I read these first three commands and see what God says to to us today as I speak. Verses 1 through 6 is page 528 in the Pew Bible. Here comes the command. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. The benefit, for length of days and years of life and peace, they will add to you. The command, let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. The benefit, so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. The command, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, the benefit, and He will make straight your paths. You may be seated. Hey, aren't they good verses? Wow, they are loaded with truth and power and blessing. And so I want to look at these requisites to a good life, and here is the first one. Number one. Obey your parents' teaching from the heart. Now, I know this seems a little bit narrow, but some of you are parents right now. And some of you are children right now, so it's right down your alley. Some of you are grandparents, and you want this kind of thing for your, par- for your children and your grandchildren. So this is kind of to you. Some of you aren't married, but looking to the day that you will be a parent. Hey, this is for you. It's got most of us covered in this room, even though maybe actively we don't have children or children aren't in the home at this time. But I've got a question for you. What is God's plan to teach His truth to the next generation? It's in this verse. God's plan for teaching the next generation His Word and His truth is through parents. Parents who know the Word of God. Parents who love the Word of God. Parents who are willing to model the Word of God in their home. And I want you to understand that when you get married and when you have children, there is no other institution. It is not the church. It is not focus on the family or whatever it may be that should raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. God says it is the parents, mom and dad, and it is such an important thing to understand. 
And so Solomon, he appeals to his son to listen to his teaching. And even though Solomon says, listen to my teaching and my commands, these didn't originate with Solomon. He didn't invent these. He was teaching his children the laws of God. He was teaching his children the word of God, the commands of God. And he was saying and appealing to his children, would you take this to your heart and follow the word of God? And so I say to you, parents, I say to you this morning, talk to your children often about his ways. Teach them right and wrong. Model it the way you live. Show them what a good marriage looks like. Teach them to be honest. Teach them how to handle their money. Teach them the truths of generosity. Teach them about biblical sexuality. God has given you 18 years to do that. And he's got this list in the Word of God that says, teach your children well. And children, it is so important to come under your parents' teaching because you know what? Parents are God's training agents for you. God has put children in your life that they would be able to teach you the ways of God. And the number one thing on the heart of a parent, I guarantee you, is that their children would have a long and satisfying life in the will of God. And there's nothing that will pain a parent more to realize that their children could care less about those things and go off the deep end thinking they know what life is about. Now Solomon recognized something that's so important here. It's not just about obedience for the children. It's that they obey from their heart. He said, let your heart keep my commandments. And Solomon is hoping that they will obey the word of God because they want to. Because it's from their own inclination. And he realizes that if the kids don't want to, it won't be theirs. And when they get out of their parents' home, they're just going to throw over the traces. They've got to own it. And there are times even when the children are in the house and the parents ask them to do something or to follow the Word of God and they don't want to and they put up a big stink and there's a big fight in the house and those kinds of things. And so he says, from the heart, it's his prayer that these children would want to do what God has asked them to do. And sometimes it's a hard thing, but you know this business about keeping your parents' commandments and learning the Word of God is so important because there's another principle that goes and rises above all that, and here it is. Friends, we learn to obey God by obeying our parents. And God has given us 18 years to learn this grace and this discipline. That if you can learn to obey your mom and dad when you become an adult, you will be able to obey your heavenly father. But here's the problem. If in those 18 years you grow up and you've got the battlefront going all the time and you don't want to obey mom and dad, when you get in the crucible of life and on your own, it's going to be so much harder for you to obey the Lord God Almighty. And so I appeal to you children who are at home. Listen to your mom and dad. Are you going to like it all the time? No. Are you going to think you know more than them a lot of the time? Yeah, maybe. But just think about this. You'll feel the same way when God speaks to you later on if you have not learned to walk, to follow him by following your parents. And so obedience is a requisite to the 
following of the Lord and his presence. And if we obey his commands, we're going to be able to follow in his blessing. Now, when I preach, I try to be as honest as I possibly can. And we're going to see a problem here. A problem because we look at the benefit in verse 2. It says, if you obey your parents, you're going to have a long and um, where is my long and peaceful life. And I think that's de- directly de- uh, tied to Exodus chapter 20 and verse 12 and the fifth commandment where it says, honor your father and your mother that you may live long on the earth. And so we don't have rocket science here. God is saying if you'll obey your parents, your life will go much easier down the road. But here's the problem, and I'm being honest with you. We have a situation in America where you don't have a lot of parents teaching their children the Word of God. We have a situation in America where you have a lot of parents, excuse me, children who don't want to obey their mom and and their dad. But they're living long lives. And you would think that you wouldn't live a long life if you didn't obey your mom and dad. So what's the deal? Well, you look at 1900, the life expectancy was 47. You look at 1950, it rose to 68. Today, the life expectancy is 77. And what that's saying is, yeah, you can disregard your mom and dad and still live a long life, so what's the big deal? I don't have a good answer for that, but this is what I know. I can't believe God's amazing grace that he hasn't turned his back on America for all their sin. He allows them to live a long life. It's his grace. He could have wiped out a generation. He doesn't do that. And so when we see people living longer and longer and they don't come under the commands of God, it's his grace. The second thing I want you to know is that it is much better to live a long life in the will of God than a long life outside the will of God. And why? Because if you live a long life outside the will of God, you're going to have a lot to answer for in Judgment Day, and I don't think you want to have that long resume. It is so much better to live in the commands of God and let Him bless us the way He wants. And so, the first command, that we are to honor and obey our parents and we'll live a long and peaceful life. But we move on to a second requisite for a good life. Requisite number two is to be a a scriptural friend to those in your life. A scriptural friend to those in your life, verses 3 and 4. So what are we talking about when we talk about a scriptural friend? This is where I want to come. If you will do what this text tells you to do, you won't just be a friend. You will become a scriptural kind of friend. And look at verse 3. It says, let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Now, this isn't just about being a nice friend to somebody. This is talking about how to be a friend in covenant. These words that we're looking at, steadfast love and faithfulness, are talking about the idea of being in a covenant relationship so that when you get married, you get into a covenant. And that's calling forth a scriptural friend, steadfast love and faithfulness. And when you're a child in the marriage and in the family, you are in covenant. And when you become a member of a church, you become in covenant. And when you have a good friend and you have a mutual understanding that you're faithful to one another, you are in covenant. And there are certain ways that you act when you are in covenant. And it's right here. Steadfast love and faithfulness. Now that first word, steadfast love, is translated in some versions, kindness or mercy or loving kindness. 
It's kind of a difficult word to translate into English. And so one of the best definitions I've ever seen is the words loyal love. We are loyal because we are in covenant and we're going to do the right thing for the person because we are. And so loyal love is so important to understand that what we're talking about here in steadfast love. And loyal love is basically kindness to people in covenant. Kindness to those around you. You aren't going to hurt them. And when used of God, the word steadfast love means redemption from sin. He will come and pick you up out of your sin and save you. This is great steadfast love. The second word is faithfulness. This word faithfulness carries the underlying idea of certainty and dependability and reliability and truth. And when applied to God, we see his character. He's totally dependable. He's the rock. He's reliable. And when we apply it to people, this kind of reliability means that we stand by our commitments and our promises, and in our relationships, we are faithful even when the going gets rough. We're not going to leave somebody. We're not going to deceive them. We will be faithful. Now, I, I want you to hear something that's especially important. These words, steadfast love and faithfulness, are not primarily associated with the what we do with people that are treating us nice. These words are basically how we live with people who are causing us some problems. So may I see your hands? Anybody ever in your life cause you any problems? Okay, yeah, I think we're all in the same boat. So what do you do when your spouse isn't treating you the way you want? What do you do when your kids aren't doing what they ought to be doing and throwing you a fit? What if you got somebody at church that's just kind of bugging you right now? What do you do? This is what I'm talking about right now, about being a scriptural friend. You've got to operate out of the basis of steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, is it hard to do? <laughs> Listen, we live in a generation of throwaway relationships. People trade in spouses like they trade in their cars these days. It's a hard thing. And so what we have to do is realize that there are constantly a reminder in the Scripture that we have to be the friend according to the Scriptures. And that involves treating people with steadfast love and faithfulness when they don't treat us that way. And so Solomon says, basically, keep steadfast love and faithfulness visible in your life. Put them, as it were, around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Because if you lose sight of steadfast love and faithfulness, you will start to treat those in your life who hurt you in ways you shouldn't. And again, we're talking about being a scriptural friend. Now listen, I'm going to be very open with you. What do we do when people hurt us? We try to preserve ourselves. And so we might treat that person the way we shouldn't. We might back off of them. We might treat them with anger and all those kinds of things because we want them to pay. We want them to feel pain as well. That's not what this is talking about. That We don't go there. And if we do, there are indications that we're losing steadfast love and faithfulness in our relationship. Listen, I want you to know that there isn't one of us who's easy to live with. I mean, I look at myself. I am a pill sometimes to my wife, Marie. I'm not the nicest guy in town sometimes. And there are times that she's not, in my opinion, the nicest lady in town. And so we have this kind of back and forth. 
And I have to go back to the, tr- to the reality of being a scriptural friend. And I want you to know, you just laughed at Marie and me. I could laugh at you. Do you know why? Because you're not the easiest person to live with either. <laughs> there isn't one of us. And you know what? The amazing thing about God is that we've all hurt him so bad he could have wiped us away and started all over. But he doesn't. How does he operate with us? Steadfast love and faithfulness in covenant. He is a scriptural friend. And I want you to understand that steadfast love and faithfulness are the foundation of how God operates with us. And he says, if I do that with you who are sometimes unlovely to love, I want you to do that to others around you who may sometimes be hard to love So let me give you a suggestion. If you want to do what Solomon says to do, if you want to put that around your neck and write it on your heart, I'm going to ask you to pick something out that you would wear from time to time as a reminder that when you get up next to somebody who's causing you some problems, that you'll look at that and you'll remind yourself, when I work with this person, I'm going to be a scriptural friend. I'm going to have steadfast love and faithfulness. It might be a ring. I bought this ring in Edinburgh, Scotland. And so every once in a while, I will wear this ring as a reminder of something I want to practice in my life. And every time I look at my ring, I remember this one. This ring right here, I got in Jerusalem. And it says, I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. And so if Marie ticks me off, I'll look at my ring and say, she's my beloved. She's my beloved. That's how I have to treat her in steadfast love and faithfulness. Maybe it's a necklace. I've got a necklace that I wear, and this means something for me. And there are things on my being and my person that remind me over and over, I've got to be a scriptural friend. Does that make sense? We can't lose sight of that because steadfast love and faithfulness is how God operates with us. Here's the benefit. When we operate as a scriptural friend, the Word of God says that we develop a reputation of graciousness and faithfulness, and God will notice it, and others will notice it, and it will bode well for us, and we will have honor, and when people mention your name, they will see the grace of God in you, and that will become your reputation, and you can't buy that kind of reputation. It comes when you become a scriptural friend, no matter what somebody does to you. Yeah, you'll blow it from time to time, but your goal is to be a friend in covenant who works that way. Now, also, I want you to know something else. The greatest likelihood that you'll turn a difficult relationship around is to be a kind and faithful person. Steadfast love and faithfulness. Why is that true? Suppose somebody treats you real mean and they come at you and they start yelling at you and you start yelling back at them. Is that going to enhance a relationship? Suppose they swear at you and you swear back at them. Suppose they throw something at you and you throw something back. Is that going to help? Uh Uh-uh. But a scriptural friend, steadfast love and faithfulness. And when they come at you in your jugular vein and you respond like that, That begins to build a foundation. You've got something to work with. Otherwise, it's a lost cause. I'll tell you what. There is nothing better than being a scriptural friend, even when somebody in your life is a royal jerk. Because you have no other recourse for God to work unless you become a friend in covenant. Which leads me to requisite number three. Are you with me so far? Say amen. 
Okay, good. Depend totally on God rather than on yourself. And here's where I really get to meddling. Because most of us make this mistake too often, and in the days of our lives we struggle with this. Look at verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. Anybody ever see those verses? Oh, they're so common. They're really good verses. I love these verses. Then I wonder, if we love them so much, why don't we live them? We have such a hard time living these verses. Well, most of us have a problem. We think we know better than God about how to run our lives. And these verses are telling us that we need to come to the place where we turn the reins of our lives completely over to God with total confidence that He knows what He's doing and we don't. That's a hard place to come and say, Lord, I don't know what I'm doing. Because most of us think we know how to figure out our problems ourselves. So in verse 5, it says, trust in the Lord. Now the word trust in the original has the idea to lean the whole body on something in order to rest upon it. And the best illustration I've got for that is my bed. After the elders retreat, I was a tired puppy. I went there last night and I just kind of went right into my bed. Do you know why I did that? Because I believed it could hold me and that I could put my entire weight on that bed and it wouldn't let me down. And guess what? It held me. This is the kind of trust we're talking about that we get to the place where when you are in a problem, you just lie back into the arms of God and you let him hold you and you stop trying to do it on your own. God is that kind of man, or that kind of person, not man. We can't do that. Now, a number of you remember Larry Jacobs, who was here a couple of weeks ago, and he had the cross here. We did communion. Remember that? He did something foolish last January. Now, I live up near Erie, near the bay, and it freezes over sometimes, but still, it's got some places where you can go through. And if you live near Chautauqua Lake up in New York, you hear almost every year snowmobilers go, and they go under in the ice. They're trusting something that they can't put their full weight on. So what did Larry do? Last January, he went ice fishing all by himself. And it's about 5.30 at night, and he starts moving on the ice, and it went through. And the water filled his boots, and to this day, he does not know how he got out of there. God kind of rescued him. We believe it was kind of a miracle right there. But he put his weight on something that couldn't hold him. And I am here to tell you on the authority of the Word of God, God is our rock. He is not thin ice. And He says to us, fall on me and I will hold you. And there is the only one in the entire universe that can hold you and your problems and no matter what it is, and it is only Him. And He says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Now you ask, how do you trust God with all of your heart? And I will tell you, you trust God by taking God at His Word. God speaks in the Word and we believe it. God speaks in the Word and we do it, even though it may not make sense. We are willing to trust the Lord that He knows what's better, even though we may not understand it. And even though we may know an awful lot about God, 
There are so many times that when life's trials come, instead of going to the Word of God, we consult with ourselves. And we try to figure it out. And we try to get our own ingenuity into this thing in our own way to solve our own problems, to create our own well-being. And verse 5 says, don't do that. Do you see what it says? Do not lean on your own understanding. We're not to rest on our own powers and our own abilities. We're not to rely on our own judgment and our own ideas. We're to give them all up. And I mean, who do we think we are next to God anyway? Friends, only one kind of understanding is valuable, and it's not ours. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't do our homework, and this doesn't mean that we don't engage our minds. What it does is when it's all laid out there, we're willing to choose the wisdom of God over our own wisdom and understanding and follow that course of action. I continue to be amazed at something. When I tell people to follow the Lord and not to lean on their own understanding, I've heard people say, well, I'm not going to go talk to Pastor Al because I know what he's going to say. And so they don't come. Yes, folks, you can know what I'm going to say. Do you know what I'm going to say if you come to see me and you've got a problem? I'm going to give you the Word of God. And there are so many people who say, I don't want to do it that way. And so they don't come talk. That's incredible. Don't do that. Let me give you two reasons why it's good, out of many reasons, why it's good to trust the Lord and not ourselves. Number one, God knows all the facts. We know very few. And even the facts that we do know are skewed. They're all in our favor. And we can't see objectively. So we'll never know enough. God knows it all. And so he says, don't lean on your own understanding. You don't know facts. The second thing is that God knows what's best for us, and we think we do. <laughs> He's the only one who knows what's best for us. And our temptation is to remove ourselves from situations where God has put us in order to refine us, and we say, no, thank you, I went out of the fire, and we don't allow him to refine us as gold. And we've got to be very, very careful that we don't go ahead of God because, you see, most of our thinking is self-centered. It's either to gain advantage for ourselves or to remove ourselves from problems, and God doesn't think that way. Only God knows what's truly best for us, and so when he asks us to lean on him and not trust ourselves, he knows that he is the one who comes up with the best solution, and we will most likely hurt that solution. I mean, listen to this. Did it make sense when God told Abraham and Sarah at 90 and 100, you're going to have a kid next year? Did that make sense? That's not human, human uh, understanding. So what did they do? They leaned on their own understanding, and they agreed that they would take Hagar, the handmaiden, and that Abraham and Hagar would have a child, and they had one called Ishmael. What's happened since that time? The Jews and the Arab, Ishmael is the father of the Arab nations, have had nothing but problems all the way down to our current day. Leaning on your own understanding has caused a problem for thousands of years. And God knows better. And he says, don't lean on your own understanding. Rather, if you think you've got power and control, you have to understand the only control you have is to mess up your life. That's it. You have no other power. And so God is saying, trust me to carry you. Stop 
carrying yourself, you are going to have an accident. Some years ago, maybe back in the 1890s, this high wire artist strung a wire across the Niagara River and he took a wheelbarrow. Maybe you heard of this story, but he went across the, the uh, tightrope with a wheelbarrow and he got to the other side and the crowds were cheering and they said, whoa, that's awesome. And he got to the other side, he said, now how many think that I can go back there? And with confidence, the crowd was cheering, yeah, we think you can do it. And then he said, who wants to get in? <laughs> Nobody did. Here we are, problems in life. God says, get into my wheelbarrow. He said, no, no, thank you, I'll do it my way. Only God can take you across to the other side. And so I have a hard time wondering why people are not willing to trust God right now for what they need and stop figuring it out for themselves. And I wonder if we're trusting God to save us for eternity. Why is it so hard to trust Him with the complexity of our lives right now? Well, how do we gain this trust? Verse 6, it says, acknowledge God in all our ways. This isn't about an intellectual acknowledgement about Christ or God. This is about every step we take, God is with me. Every problem I have, God is with me. Every decision I need to make, I can factor God into this. This is acknowledging God in everything that we do. And in fact, it gets to the point where Matthew 6.33 says, you let God run every area of your life. That is acknowledging God. Now, verse 6 says the benefit. He'll make your path straight, literally. He'll make your path smooth. And what that means is that when you trust God, He's not going to take away all your problems, but He's going to give you insight in your problems. He's not going to take away all your temptation, but He's going to give you power over your temptation. He's not going to give you all the answers, but He's going to lead you through His Word one step at a time to know that what He's shown you in the light, He'll take you through in the darkness, and He'll make your path smooth. And I appeal to you today. I appeal to you, stop leaning on your own understanding and stop leaning on the understanding of your friends. Not going to give you what you need. Rather, lean on the Word of God. So, I ask you as I close, do you want to experience a good life, the kind that God wants you to have with His blessing? It's going to take six things. I talked about three of them today. Number one, Follow the biblical guidance of your parents, and you'll live a long and peaceful life. Number two, be a scriptural friend, and you'll improve your relationship with God and the people in your life. And number three, rely on God's wisdom rather than your own, and you'll walk in the right pathway of life. And I'll bring you the next three in two weeks. But until then, I want us to close with an upbeat worship song. I want us to praise God that He's willing to love us with steadfast love and faithfulness to the point that if we follow Him, He will bless us. And so I'm going to ask many of you, if you're led of the Spirit, to make an intentional worship move this morning and come down to the front as we did in the first service. I suppose there were a hundred of us down here just praising the Lord together in an intentional way. Lord, we love you as a church. We're going to sing your praises together in kind of a new and intentional way. Would you stand now? As we sing, the band is here, and I'm coming down. You join me.